0: say. Law 360's weekly podcast. I'm your host Amber McKinney and I'm here with my co-host Alex Lawson.
1: Hi, how are you Amber?
0: You know, in this very stressful election week, Bill Donahue has done the smartest thing I've ever known him to do. <laughs> and that's that he's not working today. Uh um, oh, no. good for oh, him.
1: Oh, oh. I, I have different information. I, As I understand it, Bill is now the president, and that's why he can't...
0: Oh, right. That makes so much sense.
1: That's why he can't be on the show. I don't know how that happened. I certainly didn't <laughs> vote for him. Um, yeah, but yeah, the Bill, vote
0: counts have been really tricky, and suddenly it came up Donahue.
1: <laughs> yeah, I know. I mean, yeah, it's, uh, it's a whole thing. Uh, lots of surprises. Um, but like you say, I'm, I'm sure we don't have to tell people. There's a tremendous amount of news going on. Uh, as we record today, Thursday afternoon... Uh, Thursday afternoon, there's still that that pesky issue of who has actually won the election. Uh, That is not certain yet. Um, That might change by the time you actually download this episode. So we're just going to do our best uh, to move through some of this stuff. We should say that, again, as we record, there's still some states that are counting votes. Uh, The litigation has already started to move pretty quickly. Uh, The Trump campaign... Which, you know, it sort of seems to be by if if projections hold, seems like they'll come out on the short end. They've already filed suits in Pennsylvania, Michigan and Georgia, and they have promised to demand a recount in Wisconsin. Yeah, Uh, the thing about
0: these and part of what makes it a little tough to be doing a podcast today is that. As you say, they filed suits in a bunch of places, and there's already been movement on those suits. I mean, they're lightning fast.
1: Right? Yeah, we, we can run down a couple of those right now. In Pennsylvania, there was uh, the uh, there was a decision in the Pennsylvania case that um, allows uh, Republican observers of the of the ballot counting to like physically stand closer to what this. This is what this case was about. It was about like whether like how close they were literally allowed to be as they observed the ballots being totaled. That doesn't affect. The ballots or the counting efforts, or anything like that. Um, judges in Michigan and Georgia have already denied the Trump campaign's request to stop the counting of uh, different types of provisional ballots there. Uh, that happened today uh, on Thursday. There's a whole other tranche of litigation going on in DC over the post office's failure to kind of dutifully search for outstanding ballots as they were directed to do uh, earlier. Uh, there's a lot to happen. There, there's a lot that is happening. Uh, we might have I, I was going to say we'll, we'll we'll smooth it all out next week. But I'm really not in any position to say that we're going to know more than we know now. I hope we do. Um, but we do have an interesting show for you nonetheless.
0: Yeah. Um. One thing we're going to do a little later in the show, which is one of the few areas we have some real clarity, um, is talk about some of the big ballot initiatives that were on um, the ballots this year that were voted on in various states. And Mm -hmm. this is the kind of thing that can be really impactful, how those um, votes turned out, but maybe got lost in the shuffle because there's so much action happening at the top of the ticket.
1: Yeah. So we'll go over all of that stuff. There's some interesting stuff on uh, drug legalization and gambling and employment and all kinds of interesting stuff that was, like you say, scattered throughout ballots across the country do have some interesting news, though? Non-election, uh, if you can believe it, uh, that we will get to now. Yeah. And the um, first one is a really interesting case about uh, COVID safety protocols.
0: Right. We we can get away from the election for a second, but we cannot get away from the pandemic. Yeah, because, I was going to say, wow, you do know, you remember, it's one did the you other. ever,
1: did you ever think we would say, let's, let's like go to something a little lower stress and talk about the <laughs> pandemic some more? Uh, yeah. But this, is, uh, but this is a really interesting a decision. Yeah, yeah.
0: Um, okay, so let me give you sort of the top line here. There yeah. are workers at an Amazon warehouse in Staten Island that had filed a lawsuit saying that the company wasn't following um, laws and health guidelines about the coronavirus pandemic. Yeah. This week, a federal judge said it won't force Amazon to boost COVID-19 protections at that facility. This one's particularly interesting, um, not just because it's about the pandemic and, and the safety of workers. But because those workers pushed a pretty novel theory as part of the Mm -hmm. suit, um, saying that the company's pandemic policies amount to a public nuisance.
1: I mean, we we love a novel legal theory. I mean, I think I think most people know that. Uh, I think that that's a well-established part of our repertoire. It
0: is. It's a catnip uh, <laughs> for me. Novel legal theory. Uh, employment law for this one. You know. I know. That. I know. It's
1: got it. So, all. so tell us more about it. it. It involves Amazon. It's obviously a huge deal. Um, what, what exactly were they, were they bringing the suit for?
0: Yeah. So here's the backdrop. Um, it's a group of Amazon workers that said the companies mo- basically more worried about maintaining productivity in this time where they're getting lots of orders and are very busy yeah. than making sure workers aren't coming into work sick and uh, and allowing them. Uh, they're more worried about the bottom line than allowing them to take the necessary breaks for hygiene and spread out for social distancing, sort of all of the things you would expect in a safety suit around Mm COVID-19. Um, this same group of workers had actually walked off the job back in March when the pandemic first began, demanding that Amazon shut down and sanitize this this uh, warehouse yeah. because workers there had tested positive for the virus. So this mm-hmm. has been an ongoing fight and a pretty public one.
1: Yeah, yeah, yeah. It was a it was a flashpoint. It was, yeah, I, mean, absolutely. I, I remember that in the early days. Yes.
0: So in the lawsuit itself, they put forth a couple of arguments. Um, some of them are a little more traditional. So I kind of want to focus on the one that's unusual here. Um this is one of a handful of coronavirus-related workplace safety suits that said a company's handling of the virus made it an actual public nuisance mm-hmm. under public nuisance law. And this is why this is kind of a cool way to go at the, at this in some way. Um, the government can actually intervene if there's a public nuisance and address that public safety threat. So it gives a, a new avenue for direct intervention.
1: Yeah, and we got it. We're talking about it because we got a court decision on it. It's obviously an interesting way to go at it. But I, but I. I know that the – it was an interesting, like we say, it was an interesting legal theory, but the decision was a little bit more along procedural lines or like jurisdictional lines, right?
0: It it was. So U.S. Federal Judge Brian Kogan dismissed the workers' claims. They were dismissed without prejudice, so in theory they could be refiled, but it, it looks pretty clear that this isn't going to be a winning argument. Mm-hmm. Um, that judge said – it's the place of the Occupational Safety and Health Administration, not the courts, yeah. to decide if Amazon's done enough to protect workers at this fulfillment center. Mm-hmm. Um, I want to I want to give a quote from from his ruling. Courts are not expert in public health or workplace safety matters and lack the training, expertise, and resources to oversee compliance with evolving industry guidance. Plaintiffs' claims and proposed injunctive relief go to the heart of OSHA's expertise and discretion. Okay. So, yeah. Basically, I mean, that's pretty clear, right? The judge is just saying the workers, you know, should have taken this up with OSHA. This isn't something that should be in the courts at this point that, that yeah, OSHA or like should you have exhaust, first crack here.
1: Yeah, or you exhaust your administrative remedies and things like that. Yeah. Yeah,
0: And the judge even went one step further um, beyond that. And he said that even if the workers had, had the suit in the right venue and that the courts could address it, they would still lose. <laughs> um, he said Ooh. to win a public nuisance case... A plaintiff has to show they have uh, what they call a special injury beyond what's suffered by just the community at large. Um, He he gave examples in the suit of like a noxious landfill fill or a malarial pond. Um, Mm -hmm. It has to be like some specific hazard like that caused by a a company. Mm -hmm. Um, Here, the risks of COVID-19 are just too diffuse. He actually said in the ruling it's common to the New York City community at large.
1: That's a that's t- that's a tough blow for the workers. They're saying, well, you didn't you didn't really file the case. Right. You got to take it to OSHA first. And then as like a little cherry on the Sunday, it's like, actually, this is like your whole legal theory is wrong.
0: Yeah. Um, I mean, that, not a great day for them. No. What, what, what
1: are what are people saying? I mean, is I, I, like like we said, it was a closely watched case and it kind of died somewhat anticlimactically here.
0: Yeah, I mean, as you would expect, the workers' legal team basically hated this. Um, yeah. They called it devastating for the health and safety of Amazon workers, not just in this New York facility, but nationwide, because there's big fulfillment warehouses run by Amazon all over the country. Mm-hmm. Um, they they said they're currently weighing an appeal, so we'll see if this moves forward and if anything changes. Um, but here's one thing I thought was pretty interesting about how the attorneys representing the workers reacted. They pointed out that OSHA is not a great avenue for them right now, either, with this quote. The court's deference to the Occupational Safety and Health Administration should be very concerning to anyone who cares about the health of American workers, given that it has been virtually AWOL throughout this crisis.
1: So you're on notice, OSHA, from these attorneys.
0: (laughs) Yeah, I mean, I think it's pointing out a lot of the deficiencies workers are feeling about how companies are treating them during this pandemic, whether or not Mm. they're being protected. Um, We're bound to see more of this type of litigation, either administratively taken straight to OSHA or more suits of this type. So keep an eye out.
1: Next, we shockingly have a story that's not about the pandemic or the election because a... A very busy news cycle is not going to keep us from discussing one of our very favorite topic, uh, topics. It's a legal malpractice suit. Um, a New York judge uh, this week allowed this bankrupt restaurant company to go for uh, or go after punitive damages against Seifarth Shaw in a case alleging that the firm knew that one of its attorneys was basically botching this company's case and did nothing about it. So um, you know, for for the for the industry, uh, for the legal industry, gossip hounds out there, this stuff is always very interesting. It was interesting to me. So. I'm
0: I'm right there with those gossip hounds. I mean, watching yeah. a case and not doing anything about it is catnip for me. What What are the details here?
1: Yeah. So the the actual dispute here is somewhat dry. It's uh, a cyfar that uh, uh, did work for a restaurant company that was called Blue Dog at three ninety nine. They're just called Blue Dog in the filings. Uh, this was a wrongful eviction dispute with its landlord. Then the company went bankrupt, and this is all playing out in the bankruptcy court. The company's claims are pretty typical for a malpractice case. They say stuff like Seifarth uh, was missing important deadlines regarding expert reports, which, which, regar- which led to these uh, expert reports being discarded and that the company ultimately had to settle for a lower amount once, once it got um, other representation, once it, once it ditched Seifarth. For its part, the firm said that it advised Blue Dog to take a more favorable settle- settlement at an earlier stage of the case and that the company declined to take its advice. So that's not exactly malpractice in their opinion. Um, they're saying, you know, we we had a better deal for you on the table. You should have taken it then. That's not our fault. Um, but there's another layer of intrigue here beyond just the basic thing of saying our law firm screwed up. Um, much of Blue Dog's case is focused on a former Seiforth attorney named Ralph Berman, and Blue Dog says that, uh, <laughs> Ralph, that Ralph Berman was, quote, a dangerous lawyer who routinely botched his work, and that Seifarth knew about this. They knew that he was, like, some some bad lawyer, and they would often shield him from the firm's very important clients while continuing to allow him to represent Blue Dog. So it's an interesting... Sort of a layer there Ooh. about like sort of knowingly saying, like, this guy is doesn't know what he's doing, and the firm knows it, and that's what we're out to prove. This is all alleged. I'm not, I'm not saying that that's the case. This but is, this is, so this is what the flight wild. is over. Yeah, yeah.
0: This is, this brings up some really, it sounds really cut and dry if it is as presented by this restaurant group, right? That, yeah, you had a bad attorney, you knew he was bad, you kept him on our matter. Um, but it gets into trickier territory more the more you think about it because. You know, the best attorneys at big law firms are on the most prestigious cases with the biggest clients. Oh, yeah. Um, you can see how a smaller client might say, hey, you've given me a not great attorney on purpose. And it's hard to tell the difference. Is it just a perfectly capable attorney, but who's not one of the superstars that's on a big case? Or right. is it a case where you've sort of shunted off some of your your worst attorneys to small clients? It's hard right. to say.
1: Well, and that's certainly not for us to say. the The whole reason we're talking about it, I mean, the, the the case, I should say, has been has been bogged down in a bunch of like really complicated fights over discovery, mostly deriving from Blue Dog trying to get documents from 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 Cypharth uh, to prove this theory that Berman is this like black sheep or whatever, right. or whatever we want to say. The reason we're talking about it this week, uh, the bankruptcy judge that's hearing the case allowed Blue Dog to go after punitive damages, like I said, rather than just remedial damages. Um, And said that the question now is whether Seifarth was just neglectful in its representation or if it deliberately disregarded the client's interests. The quote was, I believe the allegations suffice for pleading purposes, though it is a close question. And then ultimately the question as to whether the facts support a request for punitive damages should be reserved for trial. So this is sort of a, you know, I mean, these are pretty interesting, like we say, these are pretty interesting allegations to make against a pretty respected law firm. And the judge is here saying... It's at least close enough that we can let this go forward Um, if this is the kind of thing this is I like to think of the malpractice beat as like our version of page six. If this is interesting to you, I'm sure you'll keep an eye on it uh, as we go forward here.
0: Today, our main story is election-related, but as we set up top, uh, too close to call on Trump-Biden as we're recording today. We don't know. We can't say. Yeah, we, if, we can't if, get into it. But one thing I thought would be really good, because we do have some final results from the election, is some stuff that our listeners might have missed in the flurry of what's going on with the big-ticket items, um, and that's stuff about interesting ballot measures that were up for a vote in various states. Yeah. Um I wanted to just sort of dive into a few. We've, we've sort of grouped them in some big issue areas and um, just can let people know what's happened around the country. So the first one I want to get into is, of course, uh, I have to talk about it first. It's employment related. Um, this one, I would argue, will be one of the most potentially impactful across the nation. So I mm-hmm. wanted to get into it right up top. It's all about the gig economy. In California, about 60 percent of voters approved a business backed measure to exempt Uber and other app based ride hailing and like delivery companies from the state's revised worker classification test.
1: Now, I remember we did there there was there was litigation about this very recently. I'm pretty sure we talked about on the show that was like this is a huge it was a court finding that was basically like that these companies have to treat their drivers and delivery people as employees. And that is like. This is like a huge deal because their entire they, their entire business model thrives on you know not not extending those benefits. But now we've gone we've we've swung back the other way with this with this. Product. We have yeah,
0: and and you characterize that exactly right. We've talked about it on the show before. It's really about the nature of how can the gig economy function depending yeah. on how you classify these workers. So just to back up and sort of reset everybody in case people have not been following along. The ballot measure is called Proposition 22. It carves gig economy companies out of this landmark 2019 law called AB5. AB5 made it harder to classify someone as an independent contractor instead of a traditional employee. Mm -hmm. So AB5 had extended basic job protections to folks like Uber drivers. Um, That included things like pay minimums, health insurance stipends, other legal protections that are given to employees like the right to unionize. So it was a really big deal. Mm -hmm. But now those workers, as you said, Alex, are back to square one, how it was before AB5, um, because Prop 22 passed. And here's how that went down. Uber, Lyft, DoorDash, uh, Instacart, a bunch of other big gig economy companies spent around $200 million on the campaign about Prop 22 to get that mm-hmm. passed. You can really see why they'd invest so much in this because of what we've already talked about. This is really the heart and soul of their business model. Yeah. And they really wanted to be sure that they got this result so that they don't have to worry about typical employer compliance issues like wage and hour loss stuff, employment benefits, workers' compensation. Um,
1: all that all that pesky stuff. We don't want to deal with that. <laughs> that's uh,
0: that's big Yeah. <laughs> <I> <laughs> They, they do say it is integral to their model. They make an yeah. argument that the workers themselves have more flexibility, so how much you believe that I think depends on your perspective. But yep. there's a few arguments they, they forwarded in that vein. But mm-hmm. basically, Prop 22 denies gig workers the full scope of employment rights and protections um, because it carves them out of AB5. But what it did mm-hmm. do is give them a, a few more modest benefits and safeguards that other contractors don't have. So in the end, what we've got here is that The Prop 22 measure sets um, an earnings floor um, for the minimum wage for the time workers in these jobs spend serving customers. It provides some subsidies for purchasing insurance through a state health insurance marketplace. And it requires businesses to have um, insurance for on-the-job injuries for these people. So it does give them a little more protection than Mm -hmm. they uh, had prior to AB5. So it's basically a middle ground here.
1: I know we, we began by by saying that this, this this is stuff that people might have missed. This is definitely the, ba- the, the the ballot measure that I heard the most about, even though I live in New York City because we follow this for our jobs. Um, it's obviously um, an interesting development, but um, it's, it's it was a California ballot measure. Obviously, is it is is it I mean, for now, this is a law within the state of California. But I know that there's often reason to think that it can uh, it can spread beyond that.
0: Yeah, for anybody who's an employment law follower, they know that California is often just a bellwether state for many things. Yeah. It's, it's usually on the forefront of employment law change, and this is a prime example of that. So while the fight about AB5 and, and this related proposition – Only impact California, the vote Mm -hmm. could basically ripple through similar debates that are going on right now in other states who are figuring out how to assess employee status. Um, Workers' advocates have been pushing legislators in New York, for example, um, and some other progressive led states to adopt the same kind of classification test that they put in place in California. Mm -hmm. Now, we've had this reversal where the voters said, no, gig economy workers don't have to be counted in that law. Um, so it seems more likely that gig economy companies pursue that same playbook to fight back like mm-hmm. they did in California, that they might want to, you know, fight with these same tactics um, in their lobbying efforts. Now, while things sure. are going through legislatures, maybe future ballot initiatives, if something passes, we're going to see more of this sort of they tested out what to do and won in California. So we'll probably mm-hmm. see more of it other places. Um One interesting thing I think is what some advocates and and employment attorneys are predicting could happen is a bit more of a hybrid model, like what's actually in Proposition 22. So as I said a few minutes ago, basically the ballot measure spared gig businesses the expense and sort of legal liability of making them reclassify all their workers as employees, but Mm -hmm. it did extend some of those more modest worker protections and benefits to the contractors that they didn't have before. So there's some, you know, meeting somewhere in the middle there that maybe could lead lawmakers to just adopt that as the new stance in other States and cities where they might set some protections for gig workers, but not fully reclassify them as employees. And we're just gonna have to wait and see what happens.
1: It's very interesting to try and sort of, it's, It's a question that bounces around in courts all the time. And the idea of trying to codify a permanent solution within the, like, you know, specifically for gig economy companies within state statutes is obviously an interesting effort. We'll see how it goes. There was one other employment thing before we move on to other things. Just
0: wanted to tick off one more employment thing while we're on this, this sort of bucket subject area. And that's um, some important movement in a pretty big state. Florida voters approved a measure to increase the state minimum wage law to $15 an hour, over the course of six years. So it's a graduated increase. But that's big news. $15 an hour is what a lot of advocates have been fighting for nationwide. And now they've achieved that result in Florida. Uh,
1: The other thing we want to, of course, touch on is what I like to what I like to categorize as the vices bucket. We're going to be talking drugs and gambling here. So pull up a chair. Uh, I love a
0: vices bucket.
1: I'll I'll try and keep it uh, PG or something close to that. Uh, So there were lots of interesting uh, ballot measures uh, across the country on stuff like this. So starting on the cannabis front, uh, voters in New Jersey, Arizona and Montana approved uh, ballot measures to legalize recreational marijuana in those states. Uh, Just a couple of notes there. Arizona voters did that just four years after a similar measure failed. And that kind of in my mind, that kind of just shows how fast, you know, hearts and minds are changing in this area of the law regarding Weed legalization, New Jersey's passage is has been. I, people have already sort of spoken about this as putting pressure on New York and other sort of dense urban, uh, you know, areas to follow suit. I don't know about you, New Jersey already has sports gambling, and so I'm thinking... We've got it all
0: in the Garden State.
1: I'm thinking next year is going to be the year of taking the path train from New York to (laughs) buy weed and place football wagers. Um, You know,
0: I've been your your friend for a long time, and (laughs) never has anybody shown up in Jersey City where I live, but now look at what's going to draw people across the river.
1: (laughs) Uh, Also, um, South Dakota, uh, uh, voters in South Dakota approved measures to legalize... Cannabis for both recreational and medical use in like one fell swoop. So they went from complete prohibition to allowing it on both in in both forms through through in, in one election day. Um, Mississippi, uh, which you often, which most people probably don't think of as a bastion of sort of progressive thought on on marijuana policy, voters there backed a measure to create uh, a medical marijuana program in the state. So they have full prohibition, and now they are um, sort of laying the groundwork for medical. Uh, in Oregon, uh, which has long been ahead of the curve on uh, ahead of the curve on cannabis, uh, voters backed a historic initiative to legalize psychedelic mushrooms, which is pretty interesting, and also decriminalize other hard drugs like cocaine and heroin. Um, there were uh, so that's, that's
0: a big swing. Like, yeah, I a mean, big move.
1: Yeah, like I say, I mean, we were just talking about how uh, about how California is, um, you know, a, can often be a seeding ground for for employment law developments. Um, I think Oregon and, and Colorado as well are often positioned themselves that way in terms of cannabis and other sort of drug legalization issues. So definitely something to monitor. Uh, The other half of this, uh, there were some interesting developments on the sports gambling front, which obviously has seen a lot of action since the Supreme Court's decision a few years back that would allow states to begin legalizing sports betting. Voters in Maryland, South Dakota, and Louisiana all threw their support behind some form of sports gambling legalization. Some of those states had gambling in other forms that were legal, and this um, specifically pertains to sports gambling um so those are all very interesting. We have stories on those if you want to read more about the particulars there. I want to take off some other ones here that Yeah, uh, lightning just, round time. Yeah, it's, yeah, it's lightning round. A couple of these other things. In California, you had voters uh reject a measure that would have uh installed affirmative action programs for education and government jobs. The state constitution has like a has a de facto ban on sex and race-based preference programs. And that measure um, would would have struck that down. So it would have allowed for affirmative action programs to be installed. It was rejected by 56 percent of voters um, on abortion in Colorado. Colorado voters, uh, Colorado voters defeated a proposed ban on most uh, abortions at 22 weeks or later. Um, and then in Nevada, uh, this is on the renewable energy front. Uh, voters approved a measure that would mandate that would mandate the state's uh, electricity suppliers to reach fifty percent renewable energy by twenty thirty. So we just wanted to I mean, I think it's good to sort of draw attention to some of these state level measures which can produce momentum in one direction or the other for yeah. various sort of legal issues. It's very interesting,
0: I think we also often hear as voters, you know, that we should pay attention to things like down ballot races and then yeah, all of yeah. these propositions that show up when you vote. And, Seeing what big ticket issues were included across the nation this year, that is very true in 2020. Big movements. Yes. Dinner our show is something offbeat, and Alex, I know you brought one that you want to talk about today.
1: Yes, well, I didn't watch. I didn't watch much election coverage just because I don't really watch cable news a lot because I, I think it's just kind of meandering. And certainly on uh, this particular election night, when I knew that hey, here we are two days later and we still don't know who won the freaking thing. Um, but I did watch for a little bit, and wouldn't you know that one of the commercials drifts across my TV here in the New York market. Is a commercial for the new law firm uh, launched by Ross Salino, one half oh. of the former New York institution Salino and Barnes. And anyone who's listening who knows about Salino and Barnes, n- we, we know them for the jingle. That is, that is what made it an institution. That's what everybody knows. This was the subject of uh, Offbeats Past. I think I think we probably have some sound from the last from the last time we sang it. Let's 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 let's, let's uh, hand it off to the pro se singers, Celino <laughs> and Barnes, injury attorneys, 800-888-8888. eight 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 eight.
0: Don't wait, <laughs> call eight. That was good. All right. Well,
1: all right. Well, it was. It was. A, they, they had this. The 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 firm dissolved uh, somewhat acrimoniously. We talked that that has been the subject of uh, offbeat segments past. Um, then, uh, Salino is struck out on his own and started his own thing. And, the, and then, like, like I say here, the jingle is the entire thing. And so, this commercial goes on and I'm kind of waiting to see what, what kind of heat he's packing for the new jingle. And we get to the end of the show, or, or rather, we get to the end of the commercial and then we hear this. Your case really worked? Call and find out
0: now. call Five,
1: five, five, 55, 55. So I mean I don't know if, if, uh, if it's not too much trouble maybe I, we can add in the Prices Right uh, Loser Trombone because I yeah. I mean I'm not I'm not a I'm not so into that one Amber I gotta well, say it. look, it's a step um,
0: backwards I poorly sang the original <laughs> yeah I was like we're really in I, no position I, to critique I can't I can't <laughs> get behind the new one it's even no. worse it's it's um. I wish that the listeners could actually see me right now because I've made a lot of faces while that was playing. A lot of like scrunched nose face. It just, it's, it's like I'm smelling something bad.
1: Well, I mean, I don't want to get too deep into like jingle theory here, but it's just, the composition is just very clunky. First of, well, okay. First the positives, okay? I like that it begins with a question. It's a, if you couldn't make it out, the reason is because I had to film it on my TV because it's not on the internet, maybe because it's so bad. But it begins with a question. It says injured. Injured call yep. Salino. And then it does the number. But the number's too clunky. They do fifty-five fifty-five instead of just five 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 five. Um it's very it's it's like marble mouth, uh, when you hear it. Uh, I so, I think the
0: inherent problem here is what <laughs> Tell many, me the
1: inherent problem.
0: Well, it's what many songwriters face in a sophomore album, if you will. Yeah. Where oh, they point. come out yeah. with some magic the first time out of the gate. People love it. It becomes iconic. They have a number one single. This jingle was officially like the number one single of jingles. Everyone that's, knows it. Everyone loves it. Yeah, that's you, true. You, and then, when you, then the problem many people make in that sophomore album is that they try to replicate the magic too closely. Yeah. They tried to stick too close to the original. And so I think what we're reacting so negatively to isn't that the jingle in and of itself is so terrible. It's just yeah. another jingle. Yeah, but it's is- that you're comparing it to the gold standard they had before.
1: Yeah, it's sort of like the original jingle got trapped in the Jeff Goldblum fly chamber yeah, with absolutely. like with like a broken xylophone or something. Yeah, I don't know. Yeah. It, it, it merged with something bad, and I don't I don't care for <laughs> it. I, again, I haven't. I, I wanted to get a better audio clip for everyone so that you could make it out. I can't find it. I don't know if he's in the process. I don't know if it's been received so badly that he's walking it back and going back to the shop or, or rather back to the studio. Maybe I don't know. Uh, we'll keep you posted on like any future I, I jingle development. I wish we could give
0: this as like a task to our very own Steve Trader and Kelly Marcano to buy. like, I know, hey, yeah. can you guys do a better jingle? Because I, yeah, I think they could.
1: I think they could. Well, that's. Uh, we'll, we'll consider that some marching orders going forward. But that's it for jingle chat. Uh, I think uh, we've exhausted that. I think this is almost as long as the main segment this week. So. That's
0: <laughs> well, I'm happy that we were able to dissect that, Alex. And yeah. thanks for going through all of the... Um, ballot initiatives and the crazy stuff we know about the election. I'm going to sign off now and turn CNN back on.
1: All right. See you later.
0: We also have a bunch of people to thank for today's show, including our producers, Kelly Marcano and Stephen Trader, our graphic designer, Chris Yates, and many contributing reporters, including Braden Campbell, Mike Lasusa, Zach Zager, Diana Novak jones Sam Reisman, Kevin Penton, and probably some other people in our newsroom I'm forgetting. So thank you to everyone for our great election coverage this year. Music for the show comes from Silent Partner and Kelly Marcano. If you like Pro Se, please leave us a written review. That really helps other people find our show. And if you want to read more about anything we've talked about today, go to our website, law360.com slash podcast. Thanks, and see you back here next week.